John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 351.AC2830, certificate number 25380, Dingbat Apartments. So we have talked quite a bit about mid-century architecture and culture and, and things on this program, and it's not just because I recently bought a house that was that was built in 1953. I feel like it's the other way around. You bought that house because you're interested in the period. Yeah, and it was not a period that I uh, that I grew up being interested in because when I was a kid in the 70s, all that 1955 stuff was just exactly in the sweet spot of like, this is old, dusty, and not kept up. I used to like looking at my parents' old like elementary school readers where you could see Dick and Jane with their yeah. with their freshly ironed clothes, having freshly scrubbed adventures. And even though it was only 20 years old, it just seemed like uh, another planet that was hilarious. <laughs> like, look, they have chums, you know? Uh, so I can totally see that about fashion as well. Like, yeah. um, you want shag carpeting and waterbeds. Right. And it, but it, but it has gone through a period of, like, where its fashionability was at, you, you watch these things become so unfashionable that they are, they're absolutely like uh, examples of the worst possible taste, uh, the kind of thing that you, and then they go through a period where they're, where they're ironic. They're so bad, they're ironic. And then when the irony wears off, then they just go back to being well, we've, uh, terrible. We've landed on thinking that this mid-century stuff was actually good. And is that because it was inherently good all along once we lost all our associations with it? Well, the the thing like uh, the thing about mid-century everything is that um just like Victoriana, uh, that in, that term encompasses the entire breadth from the crappiest, cheapest uh, prefabricated stuff to the you know the nicest and most expensive and custom stuff. I mean, Victoria, Queen Victoria was responsible for some amazing uh, a period of amazing architecture, but also for uh, the Boer Wars. So you know, it, it, it's that a that doesn't count as architecture per se. <laughs> I don't want to buy a house that reminds everyone of the Boer Wars. But the thing about the about uh, mid century, I'm just period, wondering if you think some periods are actually inherently better than others, and that's why they kind of emerge as evergreen and some do not. 
so much gets lumped into this because what is what is mid-century as a descriptor other than to say everything built between 1945 and 1965 or 68? Um, Let me just say one thing before you get, get into this. I, uh, jump in. I'm a little bit younger than you, so I have the experience of thinking all these 70s signifiers are just laughable. Yeah. You know, watching watching uh, Barney Miller reruns and just laughing at their wide ties and everything. But I had the experience of watching... I watched Network this week, uh-huh. which I hadn't looked at in a Did long time. Did it make time. you mad as hell? Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> you know what made me want to watch it? I was, I was watching Out of Sight, the, the, yeah, uh, the, the Soderbergh great, movie. Yeah, it's the fantastic. great Soderbergh movie. El, Elmore Leonard. And there's a part where George, it's the famous scene where George Leonard, George Clooney's in the in the car trunk with J-Lo and he, uh, he misquotes the Network scene. He says, remember when Peter Finch gets up there and he says, uh, 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 I'm mad as hell and uh, I'm not going to take any more of this shit. <laughs> and he's so, he's so happy that he remembers the line that she doesn't correct him. Um, but I'm watching this movie set in, you know, uh, what I would have thought of as the most laughable fashions of the time just before me. Because every generation hates the fashions from right before them. Right, it's, you have to think. It's, it's recent enough for you to know that they existed, but also to know that they're the opposite of what's cool now. Right. Um, and I'm watching, and I'm realizing that the 70s fashions are great. They have emerged in there now. The more outrageous, the better. But the hair has not. Like the hair, oh. I think, was objectively terrible, and it was blinding us to how good <laughs> the fashion was for the next twenty years. If those Are you talking about d- the dry look, the uh, the like very hairsprayed kind of like uh, Robert Redford, like dry combed? Where- A lot of it is sheer volume of hair. I see the, the ridiculous volume of the sideburns. The, you're, just, you're saying this to me now just, in my COVID uh, quarantine hair, but I'm- just clean shaven men with just unruly hair uh piles of it cascading everywhere over their shirt collar yeah um that is bad there's just no excuse for it but i'm interested to hear you say that you think the fashion is cool the giant collars and the and the the polyester Look, looks amazing now <laughs> like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna wear it because it would look like a party dress but if you saw somebody in that you would be like what an amazing look yeah. good good for you yeah, and maybe it is that it's one thing for it to be singled out now in a in a sea of conformity, and another thing when everybody was dressing like that, where it was like, whoa, and it was a race to the a race to the most ridiculous plaid pants. Or and I think that's what's interesting about mid century architecture now. Like everything, a lot of it's been destroyed or lost. A lot of it, in I mean, when when you think about Seattle in the nineteen eighties, and you remember Aurora Boulevard, and every city in America has a town like, or a, a, a street strip, like this. A strip like that, yeah. Where it was the, before the freeways were built, it was the main road in and out of town. And during this period, the post-war period, it was where all the new motels were built. The 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 streamlined modern first, and then the mid-century, the googie architecture, which we'll talk about on this show. Um, all the kind of space-age, tiki-influenced architecture of that time um, and those motels were the coolest thing in the fifties and sixties. And then by the seventies, they had fallen into kind of disrepair. And then those streets became sort of centers for prostitution and drug dealing. Those motels, the motels all, are perfect for that. Yeah. They all turned into like motel rooms by the hour. Mm-hmm. And then we watched just in the time that we've lived in Seattle as grownups, watch those motels one by one get torn down. And replaced either by cookie cutter box apartments yeah. or, or just vacant lots, such that what was once a 
a real parade of vernacular architecture is now almost completely gone. It just in 15 years, um, there was a time you could probably buy a motel on Aurora for $200,000. Now they're gone completely. And the ones that do remain, you look at them and go, how could we ever, and they're not even the good ones that remain, right? They're just the regular, just one called the Palms or whatever. You should have bought one. Down here in, in, uh, on International Boulevard outside of the airport here in SeaTac, they just have torn down all of the old motels. And of course, those were the Green River Killer motels. So maybe not so bad that they're gone, but, um, well, you can, you can request a different room. I suppose (laughs) by Washington state law, if you get placed in one of the green river killer rooms. But uh, when I think about my house and what, what appeals to me about it is that there aren't that many left that are intact, you know? So it's the, it's the rarity that increases the legitimacy. That's interesting. When you see somebody in a funky seventies outfit, part of what makes it look fantastic is it survived. Yeah, it survived and it's rare. But mid-century architecture at its loftiest um, was, it was accompanied by a whole philosophy of living. And those were expensive homes to build. And and it was a, maybe the, we talk about it all the time, where you have to be a certain amount of rich to afford to live in austere conditions. And um, mid-century architecture was, kind of without adornment that was that was the principle of it it didn't have a lot of yes. gigaws it was streamlined and it it, it was simplified. a house is a machine for living in that's right and it simplified your mind in a way that you didn't have to look at so many gilded mirrors because there's no purpose to them so it's 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 dishonest somehow right right that's right it's uh, it, don't dress it up just leave the 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 ultimate sort of Bauhaus exposure of all the conduits. Yeah, if you, if you agree that both things, if you can come around to the idea that both things are equally beautiful. Um, Form follows function. Then what you want is the house that has exactly the things you want in a house and none of the extra corners or ornaments. But at its worst, you can take that mentality and use it to justify building completely uninspired cheap, square, mass-produced buildings. Because it is cheaper. Like, once you've stripped away ornamentation, you know, that kind of complexity costs money. Well, but that's the amazing thing about about truly great mid-century architecture is it's deceptively more expensive to build. Because all those lines, all those... You know, if you talk to any builder, you realize that a wall of glass is much more expensive than a wall of wood. Because just... To, to make a to make that many windows each window is is three times the cost of of wood and stucco by square inch by square foot and so those houses that seem like they're hardly there they're just made of gossiper and the workmanship's probably better too you can't hide uh, you know being a millimeter off that's right it has to be also impossible to insulate those buildings <laughs> because the ceilings you know are lofted and then the roofs are flat there are no attics there's no crawl space there's no place to hide the um you know the elements that in a in a typical box house you just throw them you know the electricity the stuff you just throw it in the walls it's all hanging where there. does Philip Johnson even pee in his glass in his glass box right I mean where where is there you where, where's, how where's you, his water heater yeah how do you build a shower <laughs> right exactly where is the where's the the uh, the breaker box you know 
And all that stuff, you have to build it so much more sensitively in truly great mid-century architecture. I learned this from my friend Ben King, who is a an architect my age, but who studied with a lot of the architects that grew up in, like studying with the masters. Mm. And he just talks about how difficult it is if you're, if the roof of your house is only six inches deep, how do you make it so that the house isn't cold and drafty and baking hot in the summer? It's, you know, it, it's an industrial uh, design too. And we've probably gotten more picky about that stuff as time has gone on. We, we expect to have incredible control over our comfort in a, in a way that the people of the 1950s even would have expected drafts. We do. And what we, what we uh, settle for is vinyl double or triple pane windows that look terrible and are hard to interact with, but they keep the heat in, you know, we, we have central air, we have lights on dimmers. We have all these all mod cons that give us the the uh, illusion of luxury because we do have control over our environment, but what we don't have is anything in a, in a typically constructed modern house. There's nothing nice about it. The luxury is all stapled on and there's no thought really put into the design. It's just about square footage. These wonderful, the wonderful mid-century homes are all really actually surprisingly small in their dimensions because the idea is that you not, you know, lumber around your oversized house, um, sitting at your vanity and, and mom has an office, dad has an office, you know, those houses were meant to be lived in with a kind of austerity of spirit. Yeah. Is, is that the idea that it's, that it's kind of showy, that it's, it's showy to have too much stuff or is it just, eh, this is by our standards, this is a pretty big house. So it's the right amount of showiness. It's just the goalposts keep moving. I think there, you know, if you talk about architecture or art or design or fashion with any kind of philosophical underpinning, you get very quickly to the idea that your environment, that the aesthetics of the things around you are going to have an effect on your virtue or lack thereof, that the house is going to inspire you to think more clearly. The, 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 the style is going to pair away the confusion and clutter in your mind and and be and you will be uh, you will have a kind of um like the austerity of the setting will bring peace i do find that i'm happier in a room that looks good yeah. and not one where i'm constantly troubled by i never liked that shelf uh i never liked where that window is but i'm not sure if it's actually any kind of inner peace or if it's just kind of the self-congratulation of, uh, I did it. I, I, I got a room to my specifications and that's what winners do. I wonder how different it is within this idea. Right. And it is a, it is a modern concept that, um, because really to buy a mid-century modern house is consumerism and it's, and it's finest yeah. to have a house that only has one perfect thing on every shelf is to still be convinced there is a perfect thing. But also a house that's made out of windows is hopefully not situated over a freeway on-ramp. Those windows are inviting in your, your landscaped, your beautifully landscaped garden as well. But at its, as this style started to, or I mean, as it was translated into the mid-economic strata and then the, the widespread because this was a period in America of a tremendous growth. Suburbs, people coming back from the war, a baby boom, 
people wanting to buy a new house. Lots of new building. New building. New construction. And so all of that building wasn't going to be... It can't all be high quality. It can't all be high quality. And as it started to filter down, you got the austerity, but it, but the austerity became a byword for cheap and square. It's much harder to build something with a curve than with a square. And if your style is square, hey, what a boon to builders and property owners um, to build a square box with square windows and, and, and square stairs and square lights. Uh, it all fits. It all packs nicely in a box <laughs> and packs <laughs> nicely in the back of a truck. It'll arrive in a kit. Yeah. Um, so by the, by the early fifties, the mid fifties there, uh, especially in major cities and cities that were experiencing rapid growth, like Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, crazy to, think how, of crazy to think how long Los Angeles is just a tiny little city. I mean, it's. And Los Angeles in the Seattle was the second biggest city on the Pacific on the U.S. Pacific Coast, well into the 20th century. San Francisco, then Seattle. Isn't that incredible? Because L.A. was just a little cow town in an orchard grove. And L.A. the 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 vernacular architecture that was native to there was the L.A. bungalow and a lot of sort of Spanish Spanish mission influence mission stuff, but also just a just the classic turn of the last century bungalow. Um, small sort of hip roofed, um, maybe two rooms upstairs and two bedrooms downstairs, pretty humble neighborhood after neighborhood of these little houses. And with the rise of Hollywood and then post-war LA, just, just boom times, um, in a, in an attempt to bring density into those, those neighborhoods, uh, there was a lot of, of tearing down of two bedroom bungalows and replacing them with apartment buildings so that you, you know, if, if you were a property owner that had a two bedroom bungalow, but could replace it with a building that had six apartments in it, you know, you, um, it made a real difference to your income. And there were, uh, a lot of people moving to LA, Seattle, New York, San Francisco, Las Vegas was a town invented completely out of whole cloth during this period. But all of these towns had people moving in who were part of a service economy, to people who who weren't in a position to buy a house and live there for thirty years, but wanted a wanted an apartment to because they were working as a waiter trying to get into film or, um, you know, working for the aircraft manufacturer or for you know that it was a it was a time. The the 50s and 60s were a time when America was in motion and people were in motion. So maybe the first generation where there's this transitory kind of expected apartment chapter of life right. between living in, in mom and dad's house and then either inheriting it or when people lived less time, inheriting it or moving into your own place. That that was not, you know, that's an expected decade of American life now. Um, but that's a fairly modern invention. Sure. You would have been married at, at 20 at any time prior. You didn't, or the, the vast majority of people didn't spend their, their, their twenties just, just gadding about, right. Working a series of whatever jobs and, and, um. Bopping from apartment to apartment as rent rent changed. Making out with as many people as you can or, or in your case, getting married, you know, right out of college to your sweetheart. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you definitely don't want to do it in that order. You don't want to get married and then make out with as many people as you can. Well, it depends on who, who you are. It depends on who you know. But if, also, if you've got all the shag carpeting and waterbeds, maybe you can get away with it. This was, the, this was the time when the highways and American cars, that whole, uh, that whole world all came to fruition. We'd been building highways across America for 50 years at that point, but it finally all clicked, right? You could drive from Boston to San Francisco in just one under, uninterrupted stretch of road. You know, you get on Highway 40 and go all the way across the country. I wonder if it took decades for the psychological effect of that to become clear, you know, or if people were immediately like, oh boy, we could drive to the other ocean. Or if it probably took, probably took a new generation to do that. In the 30s, there was the sort of dawn of that realization and the roads were being connected and the cars were capable of that kind of travel. But it was also... Um, it was also the great depression. It wasn't a widespread, no one had the, I mean, the, the Okies made their way out to California in their, in their wagon trains of model. They lived in government camps. I've seen grapes of wrath. Yeah, that's right. They sure did. They were, they were, they all had mice in their pockets. They just, they were just picking peaches. But it wasn't until after the war when you had money, you had the, the brand new cars and all these wonderful roads. And there became an, um, part of the mid-century vernacular was, was targeted at the people in cars that were newly making their way around, not just the city or the state, but the country. People going on trips to just go on trips, to be in cars. And Are you talking about motels or are you talking about longer-term residential? I'm talking about a vernacular of mid-century architecture that, that revolved around... Car access. Cars and car access. And it, it took the form of of a sense of design, a style, a design style that predominated in businesses that catered to cars, gas stations, motels, coffee shops, people, donut houses, people bringing me a hamburger on roller skates. That's right. And so these buildings, um, took shape partly as advertising signs, the, 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 Mm. the shape of the building and the style of the, of the, the decorative elements and of the, and incorporating the sign into the building. You still see it in LA. You do a lot in LA. Where even though rents are still up, um, you know, whole stretches, whole swaths of it have not been, uh, plowed under like it has here. So you can still see a donut shop with a big giant donut on the sign or just an amazing looking old burger dive that has looked like that since, the early fifties. And some of that is because there was so much of it because LA grew so rapidly during that time and cars were such a big part of it that, I mean, LA has only recently started to appreciate this, uh, this architecture as being significant enough to save. And a lot of the great examples of it, um, were torn down just in the last 15 years by, by people that wanted to replace it with something stupid. Um, which is kind of always the case. Just when you start to realize that a thing is beautiful, that's when it's at its greatest threat. I wonder if the need for movie and TV production to preserve this stuff has um, has actually moved the needle at all, you know? But maybe they're okay with just five of those cool old-timey diners because you see them over and over again. Yeah. The, the really good ones, the really good motels you'll see in every TV show. Um, but there's a need for them. There is, and also in LA, there there's a whole... There's an old industry of people that are hyper-conscious of style, hyper-conscious of, of um, 
Well, just like every aspect of consumerism. And with an emphasis on camp and kitsch because, right. you know, it's a, it's a town of pop culture where a lot of people work in, in uh, recent-leaning design fields, uh, a vibrant queer culture, which helps. Right. Um, it's a city that's going to appreciate that stuff on a different level. And that was true even in, its, in the time that these things were being designed and built. They knew um, that they knew the big donut was funny. They they did, and what you see in this architecture is that this was this was a time. Let's let's set an arbitrary date of 1953. Um, it was post nuclear bomb, post war, and the war, World War II, and the dawn of the jet age. Um, it produced a lot of styling cues in the form of just what was expedient in terms of making airplanes fly faster and. And, um, all that, all the way the weaponry became more and more streamlined as a way of, of, uh, you know, the, uh, making it more functional as a war machine. Um, you know, you're talking about the, there's almost an aerodynamic styling to some of these buildings. There, there absolutely is the whole notion of aerodynamic design, which was trying to get more and more, um, fuel efficiency out of a out of a B-17. Makes no sense for a building, which isn't going anywhere. Or or really, a, you know, a 57 Chevy right. doesn't really need f- fins in that same way. I don't know. Maybe each uh, fin bumps up your gas mileage by 0.001 gallon. Keeps that sh- the, the wind shear off of the, off of the wear off of the tires. But, so you see this kind of grab bag of, of styling cues that, uh, that revolve around um, the kind of clip art of an atom with a little central ball and some spinning uh, electrons around the outside of it. It's funny. It's a weird take on science. Science is cute. It's science is cute. You've got the, you've got boomerang shapes and parallelograms, but are kind of soft, like, like uh, organic looking, but also boomerangs being a kind of emblem that looks aerodynamic and futuristic neon lends itself to cursive. So you get more kind of curves and ribbons in even the typography, right? Oh yeah, I can see it. Plus all of the people coming back from the South Pacific, uh, you, you introduce tiki culture and Hawaiian culture into it. So you suddenly have, in addition to the, the, uh, nuclear aerospace, uh, stuff. Then you have on top of that a kind of Polynesian culture, but also you've got people coming back from France, and so you introduce sort of Riviera uh, nomenclature and style, and then Florida also playing a major role. You know, Florida and Cuba yeah. being places the, the kind of the playgrounds of this era. You get the flamingos and the. And the Ricky Ricardo kind of, kind of like Caribbean vibes. I guess I'd never really thought about how much the jet age just ended American isolation, default American isolationism. Yeah. Like we build stuff this way because why not? We're 3000 miles from anybody doing, doing it differently. But now that everybody's seen the Caribbean, the, you know, the South Pacific, a lot of them served in Europe, they can all go back to those places with their families uh, suddenly, you're going to have more cross pollination of of everything, and that includes design. And the and the the very top level of all that stuff really lent itself to kitsch, you know, to understand what Polynesian art is and represents <laughs> right. and what that stuff is. 
would be kind of like impossible for a for a serviceman to bring back with his with his aloha shirt but he could bring a little tiki doll and sit it up on the mantle and everybody you know kitsch has kitsch incorporates yeah and kitsch consumes everything and spits it out the other side uh transformed and all these buildings that got built during this period are were basically a giant waving hand saying, pull in, get off the highway, come in, check it out, coffee shop. And if you think about what it, what those buildings looked like in their initial context, surrounded by architecture that was not doing that work at all. Yeah, the equivalent, I guess, earlier in cities would have been uh, shop windows for the pedestrian. Like everything's going on inside. The purpose of the shop is to let you see what the new items are and to lure people in that way a mannequin and that and that cannot happen from a car you're going to be going by too fast to see oh are those the new dresses uh or hey that uh you know that those toys that railroad toy railroad looks fun or or whatever it is um they've got telescopes there um from a car you just need a 40 foot tall rotating donut a big sign right or a or a jet airplane on top of a and and it says this is new this is for you um, and this vernacular ended up being kind of all brought together under the rubric Googie architecture. And Googie, what does that even mean? Uh, there was a there, in LA. There was a a diner called Googies, G O O G I E S. Yeah, it's a woman's nickname. I think there's a, there's yeah. an actress named Googie. Yeah, it was a it was a, a the nickname of the of the mother or the wife of the founder of Googies. And it was done in, um, you know, in this kind of like space age, modern, um, attention grabbing, multicolored LA diner architecture. And it was just so, um, it, it was, it's only called Googie architecture because an art critic, uh, driving past saw it and said, you know, that, that stands in for all of all of this style. It could just as easily be called norms architecture. Well, something about the word Googie with those round G's and O's and and the kind of the, the funny, the goofy sound of it, because it sounds like words like doodad and, and, uh, and goof. (laughs) Um, I think, I think Googie as a name is often a name for Georgette. Yeah. Right. Or Georgia, but a cute one. So Ken, let me tell you throughout this entire pandemic, we have been uh, here at the house getting three HelloFresh meals a week. And, um, you know, I think I prior to this, I was a little bit afraid that if you ordered three HelloFresh meals a week that you would never get to them all. You know, you, they're, they're, you wouldn't get around to it. But making and eating HelloFresh here at the house has made the pandemic so much more I don't know, enjoyable, communal. We've eaten better. You have to shop less. Shop less. It's been very affordable given uh, the other alternatives. You know, it's it, rather than order out, rather than, you know, go through the whole rigmarole of going to the grocery store and all the other stuff. HelloFresh just shows up on the porch every week like clockwork. It's always an interesting uh, recipe. They and, send, yeah, they send the ingredients pre measured. Yep. But not necessarily pre-prepared, like you might still have to chop your onion or something? Well, I've used other uh, home food delivery services, and HelloFresh does, I mean, you do have to do cooking and 
preparing food. It's yeah, which is that's the fresh part. It's fun, you know. It's not. It's uh. It's it's something you can do as a family. But HelloFresh really makes it simple. There are other food programs where you where you basically like you're you have to work to prepare the meal. And in this case, the instructions are easy to follow. We really, and you know, you can kind of whip these meals up. We tried it this week. We had. Uh, pasta with lemony chicken and zucchini. That's a great one. And we had chipotle sloppy joes. Also good. And we had sweet chili pork bowls. Super good. The bulgogi, uh, the Korean bulgogi bowl is one of my favorites, but there's also many different sort of, I mean, s- super international menu. We were all, I was a little skeptical and we were all totally sold. Well, you're skeptical because your wife is an incredible cook. She was the one who was the most sold because, you know, she's kind of a, she's kind of finicky about food. Yeah. And when these all turned out to be really good, she was like, oh, and I didn't have to do any meal planning and the prep was a lot easier. Yeah. Like I think her. You know, her day just went so much better when she didn't have to think about all that, and the meal was still great. Super good, and you can order. Uh, you can order it with a kid-centered menu. You can get vegetarian. We got the the kung pao cauliflower for my veggie daughter. Yep, it was great. Yeah, yeah. I ha- I have nothing uh, but praise for the HelloFresh experience. Their packaging is all recyclable, and they do carbon offset offsets for their full uh, operation. So their carbon footprint is actually lower than anything you would buy in stores, and you've saved money. I find that's true. Their their packaging has they they keep experimenting. Sometimes it's much clearer how to recycle it than other times. But we're avid recyclers here, so I've I've uh, I've experimented with all the different ways. But they they obviously are very conscientious and trying to eliminate. Um, all kinds of non-recyclable containers. I mean, there's some stuff that's just hard to, it's hard to make a freezer pack right. that keeps your meat cold through the mail and also is easy to recycle. But they're, you know, they, they seem to be working on it really hard. If any of this has convinced you, uh, you should try HelloFresh out. I was pleasantly surprised this week. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Omnibus9090. And use code Omnibus90. Do you know why it's code Omnibus90, John? Uh, why? It has nothing to do with, uh, w- what's your favorite album of 1990? Uh, oh, 1990 was mm, kind of a dark year for music. Mm, uh, I, I think of, I think of that as like... Is that 89? That's 89. Uh, right here, right now. Jesus Jones? <laughs> I think so. Isn't that a 1990 record? This. The oh, re- wait. Groove is in the heart. Groove is in the heart. Wasn't that 1990? The reason why the code is Omnibus 90 is because you will get $90 off Whoa! your first HelloFresh order, including free shipping. That is a great deal. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Omnibus 90 and enter Omnibus 90. That's HelloFresh.com and enter the code Omnibus 90 for $90 off your first order. Right here, right now. But the thing about Googie architecture is that although if you put it next to um, the great mid-century architecture, the um, the sort of, you know, the, the Richard Neutra buildings, the, you know, the austere glass um, sort of paragons of this style, if you put those next to Googie buildings, you can see a through line in the sense that they're both very modern and they both are 
derived from elements of what would have been deco architecture. Um, but their philosophies are extremely different. And the, you know, that high art mid-century without adornment, if you compare it to Googie architecture, which is all about adornment and, and Googie architecture also uses a lot of shapes that, you know, the flat roofs, the parallelograms, the, um, the, the vaulted ceilings, the, the, some of the stuff that's used across the whole spectrum of mid-century design. But there's also eye-catching, uh, you know, golden arches. Right. Uh, it's come down to us as kind of a fast food looking architecture. And golden arches, I mean, the earliest McDonald's are, are, are fundamentally Googie architecture. Uh, and Googie architecture took over all the place. If you think about the Las Vegas sign, welcome to Las Vegas. Yeah. Classic Googie architecture. Um, and what, you saw on those, they often had these, um, these graphic atoms, boomerangs, often an exploding star. Yeah. That's, and the star is basically just a nuke going off, you know, where it's, um, Oh, you think this is sublimated, sublimated, uh, suburbanite fear of the atom? Or celebration of it. I mean, we're, we're terrified of, of the atom, but we also feel like we're in charge of it now. Like we have, we are, we've mastered it. And at its worst, it's going to bring, it's going to rain apocalypse down on us. But at best, we have free energy. And um, I always think it looks more like a sunburst when I see those styles. And that's what they're called. They're called sun. You, you see them in, in clocks yeah. uh, of the time, yeah. sunburst or starburst clocks. But it's, um, but yeah, I guess, you know, like, it's also, it's, it's a, a very, it's a very modern man-made take on the sun. Yeah. It's, which, a, it's, it's, an, so it's easy to draw the line to the atom bomb. An airburst explosion. Yeah. But all of that stuff is hyper adornment based because even at its best, Googie architecture is kind of inspirational architecture, but you start to see uninspired buildings but with googie appliques. I mean, you see this now. Apartment buildings that are uh, trying to put a fresh face will often put on googie-style new logos with a little boomerang or or whatever that kind of paint palette shape is. Um, And actually, palettes, paint palettes, were used as a design element in a lot of this Oh, is that what that is? I always wonder that curved thing. A curved thing with a little thumb hole in it. You see that all the time in Googie architecture. And so now it's it's become a way of kind of uh, making a very unstylish building at least look... We can't make it not look old, but maybe we can make it look old in a a cool way to to the untrained eye. Well, what's funny about a lot of those that you're seeing is that those aren't late edition pasted up attempts to make those buildings look good. Those design elements were built with the building. They, they were, um, they were the only style those buildings ever had. (laughs) And that's what we're going to talk about today, which is the dingbat apartment building. And when you think about the word dingbat, we talk about, we use it a lot as a synonym for dummy or, or yo-yo, uh, yo-yo goofball. 
it's a Edith Bunker, right? Yeah. But, it's, but, it's, but that, it seems like an old-timier word than that. Well, and it is an old-timier word, and I think you know its, it's other use, which is as a typographic mm. word, a term for any kind of um, graphic element within a text or on the side of a text. Uh, we see them – I mean, the, the dingbat that's most familiar to us now are emojis, um, but but in you know in old typography – Dingbats were all the kind of decorative little asterisks and and I feel like I didn't see that until um, home desktop publishing became possible in the early '90s. Does the word dingbat really predate that, or or it does, or, or is it? It's it's not a home computer era word. No, home computers. Um, home computers threw dingbats up in our faces. Uh-huh. Uh, but, in the but, worst possible way. But in the, but in the world of typography, I, I wonder where the word comes from f- first. I think it means, it looks like it meant dummy first. Um, it's confusing, but actually it, it, it started as a typographical term. Oh, really? Uh, in the early 20th century. But somehow it sounds like it means dummy, so it got borrowed for that. Yeah, dingbat. I mean, whether or not, um, whether or not it's just a... a um, onomatopoeia or not. I wonder um, if ding dong or something like that already meant dummy. So dingbat, the typographical term got borrowed, but dingbat was, it, it did become kind of universal with the advent of Unicode, uh, yeah. that you could now put any one of these million little symbols, X's and crosses and circles and stars, um, snowflakes and whatnot. But no, it was a, it was part of the book printing um, in a way, it's a it's a, a, a like a modern version of an illuminated manuscript. All the stuff that you would kind of put the filigree that you'd put around a text uh, could all be described as dingbats. Not not punctuation, or at least no. not common punctuation. No, but but, but decorative but, yeah. stuff to and you know you see it a, a, on a page of poetry where where the publisher obviously feels like you need to fill up some of that blank space around the text with some other stuff. Um, and dingbat architecture, uh, as I describe it, I think everyone in America will recognize what I'm talking about. And I believe that, and, and in Canada too, because dingbat apartments are very, very, uh, they're a major part of the, um, the Vancouver, Canada architecture, so much so that Vancouver even has their own version of it. Another city that grew about the same time. Right. Um, but a dingbat apartment is one where the bottom floor, the ground floor, is just parking. Mm. Uh, and the building appears to sit on stilts floating above the street. The building is essentially a lot line building, meaning that it goes right to the end of the lot in every dimension, 50 feet wide by 100 feet long. It's as big as it can be right. for that price. Uh, there's, no, there's no appreciable yard. And then the buildings themselves are two or three stories tall. Uh, the front, if it, the front can have windows, but not necessarily. And uh, as far as you can tell from the street, there's no discernible front door. Um, the front door to the building is concealed, 
kind of uh, what you see from the street is just the taillights of a bunch of cars. Do the multiple the multiple units each have their own exterior entrances, but they're on the side or back? Is that right? Or yeah. So so one of the selling points of it. Um, to this generation of people who had never lived in apartments before was that each apartment in a dingbat building would have its own separate entrance rather than, I think for the generation prior that were living in boarding houses, rooming houses, um, there that, were, you'd have to walk through a hallway. There's yeah. a common telephone, maybe common bathroom facilities. You, right. have to, you have to see and smell your neighbor's cooking. A lobby. Less of that here. Less, less common area. It's a. It's better for the TV era isolation. And, you're the only one in your car, and you're the, then you're the only one in your house. Right, and you get the feeling, uh, even though you're sharing walls with other people, you get the feeling of autonomy of your own. This is your own um, little fiefdom, and that was part of. And you had your own parking space. Yeah, your car has its own little fiefdom too. It's uh, when you look at the pictures of these places. It's funny how how centered it is on the cars having little fun nooks. Yeah. This is where you put the car. It's almost like you're putting your shoes in a cubby. Here's where you put the car away. Now we all go into our houses. And what's crazy is that after these apartments were, uh, you know, after they were largely built or largely after they were built, um, the size of American cars kept growing and growing and growing so that an apartment building that was built in 1959 there was hardly room in those spots for a 1974 uh, Chrysler Imperial. <laughs> and it's very hard to park in those structures, I can tell you. I have dented more than one fender kind of trying to pull out of reverse out of a building that's built up to its lot line. But these buildings were cheap to build and were... Um, yeah, what's the advantage of them? Is it primarily just that they're the cheapest possible thing, or is it like, are they enough cookie cutter that um, once they started to catch on, that was just the easiest way to get plans? It's it is that you could put the most number of people into a into the square footage of your lot without exceeding zoning in terms of height or you know it, yeah is the limitation on zoning is it height is, is limitation on height here is it zoning or is it building materials it's 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 zoning mostly and you'll that's and, why they're all generally two stories above a yeah and we watch as zoning changed to uh to respond to dingbat apartments because i think even in the time uh zoners and city planners were taken by surprise as these dingbat apartments kind of swept through. I mean, there are whole neighborhoods in LA yep. where these these were not um, these weren't the original buildings. Buildings were getting torn down, old houses, bungalows. bungalows getting torn down and replaced by these so quickly that the cities didn't didn't respond. If the city had it all to do over again, maybe they would have allowed higher height limits and actually had you know real apartment buildings, more density. Yeah, and and. I I don't think at this point in time, I mean, LA had sealed its fate in choosing to design itself around the automobile. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in Seattle, the response to these buildings was decades long and, and remains uh, like philosophically an attempt to get cars out of the picture. I mean, one of the worst things about these is that they don't contribute at all to street life. You can't come sit on the stoop and talk to your friend there. There is no stoop. And so what happens is garage, the sidewalk itself becomes an impoverished desert because walking through these neighborhoods, all you're looking at is the bumpers of cars. You never see another person. You don't, 
there's no reason to ever pull up and stop and and talk. Mindy's house hunting pet peeve is private homes where no attempt has been made to conceal garage. You know, right? A three car garage is so huge in a, in a place. In, if you live any place where uh, everything's built around the automobile, that you know, places have to. Often you have a facade that just looks like a fire station because it looks like a little house has been perched kind of above and be- behind three giant garage doors. Right. And, and, and then I a guess front it, door in between them or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's big bad apartments that kind of made that look palatable. Like, well, of course you, you drive up to this house. What, what else are you going to do? Right. You drive in and no one ever, your, your feet never touch the ground. You mm-hmm. never breathe outside air. The buildings all in order to, to distinguish themselves from one another, the reason they're called dingbat apartments is that it was very common, almost universal, that they would be adorned on the outside with some little dingbat, a star, a, a boomerang, mm. a little a, a triangle of some kind, an, a, an exploding. Um, Just one of these little curly Q asterisk symbol things. Right. Or tiki lamps or a tiki statue or a flamingo or a Polynesian uh, graphic element. Um, and they all had exotic names like Casabella, La Traviata, The Flamingo. Um, they, uh, they were, in some ways, a total betrayal of the philo- philosophical version of mid-century architecture as transformation of society. Because they were they were poorly crafted, very um, inside. Like there's no connection to the outdoors. There are no windows that are that look out onto a verdant green. Um, it's just about it's it's the it's the birth of the McMansion mentality, which is my lot is seven thousand square feet. How big can the box be? Yeah, can I put a six sixty nine hundred square foot house on it? Uh, leaving enough room on either side to walk around. It's it. just when people start to fetishize square footage as as what they look at in the listing. But it, but you can get uh, as a working class person a two bedroom apartment, um, at least at the time, somewhat affordably. Now in L.A., to rent an apartment in a dingbat is not especially cheaper than to rent an apartment in a Spanish, um, you know, a Spanish colonial a little bungalow. Or is there any? Um, is there any premium to the fact that these buildings now kind of look cool and campy and old? Well, so what? What? My most recent encounter with the Dingbat apartment was when I went to Los Angeles with you last year to watch your Goat Triumph, and I was there with my uh, with my friend Jesse. And after the show, she and I went on a long walk through. Central LA, just kind of, we, I think we were headed to Katz's Deli, pre- another place with Googie architecture. You saw a lot of people walking through LA with you. Yeah, oh, so many people out on <laughs> the streets. Out giving you a wave at their, uh-huh. their little promenade at the end of the day. In fact, you do see a lot of people walking in LA on Friday and Saturday nights because they're in central LA, are, there's a, a very large Orthodox Jewish community. Oh, interesting. And so late at night, um, I often... You know, we'll be walking along kind of the only person walking. And then all of a sudden, the streets are full of people because Temple just got You're out. You're the only Gentile walking. And there are all these families, you know, they're having a wonderful time. And uh, and it's some of my favorite times in L.A. because all of a sudden, you know, you're greeting people and it's this wonderful sidewalk life. But on this particular walk, she and I were walking block after block after block past 
dingbat apartment after dingbat apartment. We never saw a front door in, in, and you know, these are nice neighborhoods. They're central. It's West Hollywood. I mean, there's a, in, L- in LA, you can mask a lot of it with nice landscaping because, you know, a lot of beautiful looking and smelling stuff grows there. It's a nice place to walk in the evening. But even here, it's, I mean, because they're the, these lot line constructions, it's just driveway, driveway, no driveway, room. no room even for a palm tree. And I was, over time, I was just struck by like, what is this? It's the worst architecture you could possibly, you couldn't, you couldn't come up with a thing that was more alienating either for pedestrians or for the people that live there themselves. Cars. Once again, cars. And I've spent, you know, back in the days when all of the pot dealers in Seattle lived in these buildings, you spend enough time in them to realize that they're not, um, they're not inviting. They're just places to habitate. Uh, did you see the movie, The Slums of Beverly Hills? Natasha Leon, yeah. Uh, but maybe not since it came out. And the whole premise of that is that uh, her father was, dry, was, was um, down and out, but kept moving from, from Dingbat apartment to Dingbat apartment within Be- the Beverly Hills school district oh, right. in order to keep, keep, that, in the schools. keep that address. Um, but, they, but that movie kind of exemplified the, the tone and, and, and timbre of living in, in these, these Dingbats. Are they kept up nice on the inside now? Well, so I've we're, never, I've never been in one. We're living in a world now where the the camp and the mid-century retro like revival it you run out pretty quickly unless you live in Palm Springs. Um, you run out pretty quickly of perfectly maintained and architecturally prominent places to restore, and those are not in everyone's price range. And there's been lately a movement called mid-century modest, which is um, a lot of people kind of appreciating the more modest sort of Levittown version of mid-century architecture that was built early enough that it was still built well mm. before everything became sort of stucco and staples. Um, there were, you know, that first iteration of it still had oak floors. Those buildings were often designed by architects at the beginning of their careers. And that mid-century modest thing is kind of keeping um, an appreciation of the era accessible to people. But in LA, there's now an, a, a dawning appreciation. First, Googie architecture is starting to be protected because some of those structures are among the best of 20th century, um, I think you would say design more than anything else, but architecture as a as a as a uh, component of design. It's funny today because pastiches of that style are everywhere in these kind of fake roadside diners, right? But and and they look kind of awful, right? But but for some reason, the authentic ones, maybe just because we know they're really from their they're true, they're from the period. Um, it just can't be recaptured. Well, it, because it, there is proportion in those, right? The the ones that are fake, like everything fake, what's lost is it's just slapped on proportion yeah. and lo- the extra expense that it that it takes to make the Corinthian column look right from a distance. Um, and that that's not a mid century reference. There aren't hopefully Corinthian columns in them. 
Um, although later, like the Hollywood, the sort of uh, Hollywood Regency version of mid-century architecture became all about Liberace level of, of decorative elements. But there, there are now people that want to start preserving these dingbats. And f- to my eye, there's still nothing there to save. Well, but- I have a question, and we have not brought this up. LA is an earthquake-prone part of the world. Mm. I mean, have you, have you looked into what happens to dingbat apartments during a quake? So what, what they're they're called soft story because right. they have one particular part of the building that collapses much easier than the rest. Uh, in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake in California, the vast majority of buildings that were destroyed were dingbats because of the soft story thing that you described. And you the, can see pictures where the. The whole apartment just lands on the cars like the Wicked Witch of the West. And what it is is that there that that in an earthquake in particular, like um, you have a lot of lateral shear forces that happen. Mm. Buildings are shaking um, off of their axis, side to side, and those lower stories are um, are without any sort of shear bearing weight. It's just posts. Uh, po- they're just on posts. Yeah. Those buildings. Um, collapsed in in uh, such proliferation that San Francisco in 2013 imposed a new ordinance insisting that all these these dingbats uh, undergo seismic retrofitting and, and adding shear walls to the uh, lower not level, shear or? walls but you you know you would need to put in new bracing mm. to you know to kind of well effectively shore them up so that in the event of an earthquake and then L.A. saw San Francisco kind of pull this off, and in 2016, L.A. rolled out what would be um, a gradual set of new uh, regulations that would, you know, starting with the the highest capacity dingbats, you know, the ones that were three stories tall that had 12 or 16 apartments, and then working over time, you know, a gradual rollout that these dingbats would have to undergo retrofitting. But of course in LA and San Francisco, both the number of um, the number of these buildings makes that an somewhat impossible task to looks, retrofit them all. It looks like LA has something as over maybe over 10,000, something on the order of 10,000 of these buildings that would need retrofitting. Yeah. And not, you know, not every, not every property owner has the wherewithal to seismically retrofit their, you know, effectively their slum building. Um, it's true all the way up the coast. We have them here in Seattle. In Vancouver, there is a there's a version. There are a lot of dingbat apartments, but there's a version of it called the the Vancouver Special, which has um, which has a sort of uh, a very shallow peak roof to it. And in Vancouver, there are so many Vancouver Specials that that it became a zoning problem and a cultural problem in Vancouver. Um, and those two are very susceptible to earthquake damage. And all of, all of these cities on the West Coast are just waiting for the big one. It's going to happen. Right? And when it does... When it uh, does, the show will be over. I don't think that even uh, even your seismic retrofitting is going to compensate for the fact that these buildings are made out of stucco and cardboard for the most part. These buildings weren't confined to the West Coast. In fact, this is also... There's a version of this architecture 
that you could describe as Atlantic City architecture. On the East Coast and in New Jersey, um, it's called doo-wop architecture. Oh, that's funny. And many of those New Jersey vacation towns, beach towns, have have as much or more um, googie architecture and dingbats as as any kind of West Coast coastal town. And then it's also really a, a major feature of uh, South Florida. Yeah, I was going to say Florida. Um, I guess it's any place where... Any place where car accessed stuff was growing really fast during that decade. And, and there was a lot of fascination with the space a- age and, oh, yeah, and, and the Googie stuff, um, maybe didn't even hit its apex until, uh, until the space race began. If you think about, um, the Seattle world's fair and the New York world's fair, they're built almost entirely in that vernacular uh, the Seattle center has, I mean, used to, I mean, the space needle is nothing if not a right. googie Seattle building. was smarter than LA because we didn't build our airport in that style. <laughs> we, <laughs> right. we, we were like, we'll, we'll put the Jetsons looking thing here where the tourists are, but we're not going to like tear down the airport. <laughs> but I mean, uh, JFK airport and, yep. um, and LAX and, uh, SeaTac, the kind of, uh, SeaTac in its second incarnation was pretty darn space age. But you see the remnants of it, and I think cities recognized that they needed to preserve these major buildings. But now it's starting to filter down to even the worst dingbats. There, are, there, there were a couple of dingbats that were sort of ironically restored. One of them uh, famously here, here or in LA. In LA, one of them famously called the Crappy Apartments. Like uh, a, I, I assume they changed the name. A transposition from Capri to oh. Crepe, uh <laughs> with an I, and th- you know this is um, these are hipsters restoring these buildings. There's one called the Cheesy Apartments. This is irony taken as far as you can go. I mean, I, yeah. I can see buying a funny lunchbox or a funny jacket from the thrift store, but when you're actually buying funny real estate or putting your name on a funny lease, that's a little bit too far. It's hard to. It's hard to envision a time because there are there are there, there are zoning laws in effect places where these buildings have been singled out as um, uh, things that the city is going to encourage developers to tear down and replace. And speaking as someone who looks at what developers are building these days, which are even in some ways worse, I can't imagine how much hatred there must be for dingbats. To say no, 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 tear this down and build your your mock craftsman, build, build, build your big Rubik, whatever that big Rubik's cube thing is. Yeah, but there are so many of them. I can't imagine ever feeling like they were, um, that they were something to be preserved. But of course, that's what that's what you always think. That's what you would have said about those those there's, bungalows. There's, there's going to be plenty of bowling alleys yeah. forever. Don't we? Don't have to worry about those. Well, and that's I mean and. Bowling Alley is another classic example of googie architecture, right? Yep. And they're all gone now, every last one. So we may live to see a time when the when the uh, crappy apartments are on a postage stamp. And that concludes Dingbat Apartments. Entry 351.AC2830, certificate number 25380, in the omnibus. Another relic getting torn down everywhere right now is social media platforms. 
John and I are going to stick it out. We are still Oof. on. We are still on Facebook in the form of our Futurelings fan group. Oof. The only way to be on Facebook, in my opinion. Uh, you can find us on Twitter as at John Roderick and at Ken Jennings. John is on Instagram as well. We are at Omnibus Project jointly on many of these uh, platforms. Uh, we uh, can be sent physical items through the United States mail to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, mm-hmm. 98155. I guess I still have some mail here to open. I don't oh, know. yes. I don't know what's in all these things. Anything good? It's not scented. Okay, so it's not to me then. <laughs> Woo! Sarah sent us a... Whew, I wonder what the era of this is. Uh, some kind of mid-20th century advertisement for the Seattle's famous curiosity shop on the waterfront downtown. What do you think the era of this advertisement is? From the typography, it could be anywhere from the 30s to the 60s. Well, from the cardstock, we know that it's from a time when this cardstock was ever used. I think this is from... Good (laughs) point. That's very true. I think this is from the 1970s. I'm going to say this is from 1978. That late. Yeah, because this version of... It's, um, it's trying to look old-timey. Ye old-timey! I feel like it hit its point around Seattle in about 78. I'm opening a box now of very... It's cool, though. Very well-padded stuff. From... Ah! From I don't know who... Is there a note? Oh, are the is that like are those sea glass floats? What are those? I don't know what else they could be unless it's some kind of bong without an opening. Oh yeah, I think that these are hand blown Japanese fishing floats. That's my guess. Did somebody warn you they were going to send you this? No, I just was talking about these to somebody the other day. These used to wash up on the beaches in the Pacific Northwest a lot. These are used by Japanese fishermen. To keep their nets afloat back before plastic, they're hand-blown glass. Although that one over there, the one next to you, looks like it's cast. What is that? Is that a crack? Or is that a casting line? That is a casting line. And uh, the top is kind of dented, though, so this one didn't come out great. But I guess it floats. Floats. That's all it needed. They used to, you know, they would get, their stuff would get caught in storms, and then these... Glass balls would just float all the way across the Pacific Ocean. Well, if you want to cool. make if you want to make bongs out of those, are there no? There's no note that came with them. They just sent two two glass balls. I feel like the addresses of another correspondent. Dear Ken and John, here are two glass balls. <laughs> One for each of us. That was very thoughtful. Oh no, here it is. There is a note finally, uh, and it's from Dawn again, who sent you the. Oh uh, yeah. The, the little locking miniature book bank recently. My friend Dawn. Uh, while clearing out my house, I set these aside for you too. So they are indeed glass floats uh, from fishing nets, I the guess. The Japanese floats. And she says that growing up in the Pacific Northwest, these seem to be found in one in every five homes, usually contained in some sort of macrame fold holder. True. I, I don't remember these as decor. Really? No. I can see it, though. They're little ones. They're big ones. And that macrame holder, I think, is meant to imitate the 
the sort of woven net that they would sure. have supported in the ocean. Uh, plus macrame would have beads in it too. So my aunt was the master at finding these on the beach with a couple at her house the size of watermelons. Yeah. I have never seen those. Oh, back in the day when you found them on the beach. I bet if you lived out on the coast, you would still find them on the beach. Hope you enjoy. And if not, you should get a pretty petty for, pretty penny for them. So what? Uh, These are collectible floats. Hmm. Now, now, now you're interested. You're like, well, look, how, how many pretty pennies? Hmm. I like it, but do I like $40 more? I'd... These are really nice, though. Thank you so much, Don. Uh, you uh, could send us virtual items. It's much simpler. You can just use the omnibusproject at gmail.com if you have access to electronic me- email. Electronic email? What's my favorite kind? Electronic email. If you have electronic email in your uh, chronological uh, period. You can always support Omnibus uh, financially at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. In fact, this very entry about Dingbat Apartments, which is right up your alley, was suggested by uh, a listener named Jeremy, who uh, thought it would be make for a great Omnibus and was right. Thank you, uh, Jeremy, for supporting the show. And that's, that's one of the higher levels of perks is you get to actually recommend a, a possible possible show topics for us to curate um but uh you know even at for a pittance for five dollars a month john you can receive uh, a bonus episode who me you could really I mean, you've probably already heard the bonus episode this month because you're on it but if i gave you five dollars i would let you listen to it again month. okay <laughs> Uh, and if you gave me $10 a month, I'd let you see the video feed uh, of, of images on the Patreon. What? And for a mere $20 a month, I would send you a signed copy of Omnibus Show Notes with your own signature on it. <laughs> cool. It's pretty great. Do you ever put pictures of me up on the internet? Yes. But I would prefer to give no other information about this. All right. I mean, I'm wearing a cool shirt today. Do you want a picture of you in your Devo shirt? My handmade Devo shirt. What, you made that? No, I didn't make it, but someone made it. Well, yeah, I mean, somebody made every shirt. But you're saying that is not, Devo did not get a cent? Oh, I don't know. That, that That's not what I'm saying. Maybe Devo, maybe Devo get got a bunch of money for this. I didn't buy it from Devo, though. I can't tell if you're using your forward-facing camera. Is that a picture of me? No, I wouldn't take a picture of you and put it on the internet. Problem is, these days, in a t-shirt, I always just look like a guy that works in... Yeah, you don't Software. wear t-shirts much. I don't, no, because you like to look a little more put together. Yeah, but I've started. I've started to wear them. I just don't want to look like a software developer. I don't think you look like a software developer. They have way. They have like a brand new and b, you know, nerdier t-shirts. Nerdier than a homemade Devo t-shirt? That's yeah. pretty nerdy. Well, because theirs are going to have like very elaborately oh. uh, designed art with a joke about... Um, sure, a uh, wolf and a, stuff. Or Euler. Yeah, wolves. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Civilization? Civilization. Were you, were you Southern for a second? We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the home.